the reality is that in business, it's not about having your game plan all mapped out and then freaking out when it doesn't go the way it's going to go. It will not go the way you plan it. That's 100% sure. It's about this is my next opportunity to sit and to have a brainstorming session. What you are is you are a problem solver. That's what you are as an entrepreneur, okay? Because you've got this map of where you're going to go, and it's going to go off track every day, every week, every month, whenever. And you just have to solve for that problem. That's what it is. Don't think I have a problem and now that's, oh no, my plan is blown up. I'm not going to, no, you're, you're, it's supposed to blow up. It has to. That's how you learn. And so if you look at that, like that's a failing, I'm failing because I'm gone off track, then you are lost. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. And so many aspects of our daily lives depend on our outlook and mindset. How do you respond to challenges, mistakes, and negative situations? Do you view them as problems or as opportunities? Do you let your adversities define your life? Do you pass up opportunities out of fear of failing? My guest on today's episode, Glenn Stearns, believes you should use failure and adversity as a catalyst for change and not a reason to quit. Glenn was born to alcoholic parents, diagnosed dyslexic, and failed fourth grade. He became a father at age 14 and graduated high school in the bottom 10% of his class. A major turning point of his life came after finishing college when he decided to take his destiny in his own hands following another night of partying. Ironically, he made this choice at a local bar that I used to frequent back in the day in Towson, Maryland. He then moved to California in search of opportunities to rise above his humble beginnings. At 25, after working as a loan officer for 10 months, Glenn formed his own mortgage company, Stearns Lending. By 2010, Stearns Lending reached nearly $1 billion in monthly funded loan volume while experiencing record growth. Stearns not only survived the 2008 mortgage lending crisis, it emerged as one of the top lenders in the country. Since 2010, Stearns Lending has funded over $30 billion in loans. In 2015, Glenn sold a majority of Stern's lending to Blackstone and then embarked on a hiatus with his family on his yacht. You would think that things would be smooth sailing from this point on. However, the tides turned and Glenn faced another major storm, cancer, which he beat twice. This, coupled with an innate hunger to reinvent himself again, was the inspiration for the show Undercover Billionaire in 2019. In the season that followed, Glenn has remained on board as an advisor and executive producer Glenn shares his entrepreneurial journey, how he built one of the most successful mortgage companies in an industry that is highly competitive. He reveals some secrets that can apply to anyone who's interested in becoming resilient in the thick of uncertainty. We also talk about his story of cancer survival, why you shouldn't solely chase money, and why he wasn't happy when he sold his company. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Glenn Stearns to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Glenn Stearns, welcome to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. All right. How you doing, Doug? 
I am well. I'm super excited to talk to you today for many reasons. But first, I think it's really admirable and cool that I believe you are the first person that I'm talking to that essentially went to school in my neighborhood. You're a graduate of Towson University. You actually graduated the year I was born and have eaten at a local restaurant that I still go to, Ocean Pride. And third, you're part of a rare breed that grew up in that era that was from Baltimore, Maryland area that is a fan of John Elway. So talk about that a little bit. Which part? Growing up in Baltimore or being a fan and a friend of John Elway? Well, we talk about Elway first and then we'll get, we'll talk about growing up here and we'll get more into your journey with Stearns Lending and how growing up in Towson or growing to Towson led to that. Yeah. It's funny being out and I met John at a hunting lodge one time out in South Dakota, I think it was, and had some friends that we'd be with some really interesting people and they'd always ask people to tell their story. And so they'd ask me to tell my story and it caught his attention and we got to talking and he says, hey, let me give you a lift home. So he flew me home. And then ever since then, we've been fast friends. That was 15 18, 20 years ago. I can't remember how long ago it's been. And But yeah, I found it a little interesting. I was around when John had decided he didn't want to come to Baltimore and instead play for the Yankees, which was really, I think, a little bit of a ploy to, to be at anywhere but Baltimore. But what I do remember of him was how much my buddy hated the Redskins. This is in 88. So this is the year before. When were you born? 88? 87. 87. Okay. So you were there, you were around, but I drove down and drove across country after college to go out to California. And we were, we ended up in new Orleans watching the Washington Redskins against the Denver Broncos in that Super Bowl, And so that was a year watching Elway get whopped. And the irony of that would be we'd become fast friends. We, we own a plane together, own a ranch together. We own a bank together. So we're real good friends. And For those uh, listening, just to give people some context, maybe if they weren't alive when this happened, or maybe they just aren't from Baltimore, so it's not as, as big of a deal to them. Like John Elway was drafted, I believe, by the Baltimore Colts and then made a decision not to come here. And it was like the people back then, and I think they still are today, the people who were lived in Baltimore were diehard football fans and diehard Baltimore Colt fans back then before they moved to Indianapolis. And it was like the biggest slap in the face ever. And people have had this deep hatred, I think, in that generation for John Elway and didn't seem and haven't seemed to have gotten over it. And, hey, and it's, people right? in the East hold grudges. <laughs> Let me tell you, Maryland and Pennsylvania. I was in Pennsylvania filming my show and the guy has his license plate says H8 Elway, hate Elway. <laughs> they still hold grudges. I took a picture, gave it to Johnny, laughed. He says they won't ever forget. No, I think it's interesting now. I think with everything that's going on right now, I, f I feel like people in Baltimore, wherever would love to have that as like their biggest problem is having their yes. quarterback that got drafted by their team decide that they didn't want to come and play here and they wanted to go play somewhere else. And I think it's ironic that you come here, you grow up here, you go to, to Towson University and you're in that era and you're probably one of the most successful you have one of the more successful business stories, I would say, to come out of the state of Maryland. And then you end up moving and going about your way, starting Stearns Lending, and then you and Elway reconnect or, or connect. 
and were able to reminisce, I'm sure, about a lot of the stories. And you told me you had some conversation with him and about what happened. And I'm sure there was some laughs, probably some, I can't believe you did that. I'm sure it was a great and fun conversation. And I'll leave it at that because I really want to get into your story because you have created and built something incredibly inspiring. You built Stearns Lending, which I believe was, it got up to being what the fifth largest private lending company in the world, correct? That's right. We're, in, we're the largest wholesale lender and we were the largest joint venture partner. And then I forget what number we were in retail, but altogether we were fifth largest in the country. So yeah, we were up there, did pretty well. Yeah. And then you guys ended up selling to Blackstone, was it like five or six years ago? Just like many, your story and the way you got there wasn't so simple. You grew up in poverty. You failed fourth grade, right? You had a kid when you were 14. And like this whole business idea of what you wanted to do came out of one of the most least expected moments. You're in a bar in Maryland. Where are you? Were you in Baltimore? Were you in Towson? Or I was in Towson. Where? Uh, Gosh, I think it was the crease. Oh, I know the crease. I used to hang out there back in the day too. And you decide to pretty much up and leave and, and move to California with a friend of yours to redis- or take this trip to California to, to rediscover yourself. You end up staying. He ends up going back home. So what was going on in your life then? What was your mindset like? What was your vision for going to California at that time in your life? I grew up pretty tough. It was not an easy road. Again, yeah, all that you said, failing fourth grade, having a child. My parents were alcoholic parents. I paid for my college myself and got kind of got out. But what really was happening was I was just falling back into those footsteps. I was going out every night. I enjoyed my life, but it was a life of partying and having a lot of fun. And um, in the middle one night, in the middle of a very foggy night, I remember laughing hysterically at a friend getting something thrown on him or slapped or something. I don't remember that part, but I remember laughing. And as I laughed, I remember thinking, wow, I laughed at the same boring stuff last night before. This was old. I don't want to do this anymore. And so just the biggest clarity in my life came in a fog. Who would think it? And I just said, I don't want to do it anymore. And, and so I, the next day I told my buddy, I said, hey, why don't we go to California? He's like, when? I go, like today, tomorrow, let's just go. And so we just packed up the car and drove down to Route 10 and over. We just went and went to California. And I, we were sleeping on the floor of a one bedroom. We knew one guy from Towson, matter of fact, and he had four other guys. So there were five of them in a one bedroom. We came, I slept in the the kitchen floor and linoleum floor for about four or five days. And, and then I knew a girl that was my boss at a place called Country Fair Inn. I don't know if you know that. It was mm-hmm. in, outside of Pikesville. And it doesn't sound familiar. Uh, yeah. And this is, uh, they've torn it down, but it was an old restaurant. And so she, I got a hold of her and she lived right near where I was, right next to the ocean there. And so she said, come stay at our place. She had an apartment there and just sleep on a, in a bed. So I did. The next day, she went to work. I just found myself, walked over towards the beach. I was up on a cliff on a, on a bench looking over the ocean with these million-dollar homes, these fast cars, these beautiful people. I'm like, I want this. What does it take? So I saw a man in his yard, and, and I asked him, I said, what did it take to get this place? I said, I know I can do it. What does it take? 
And he's, senor, I'm the gardener. I have no idea. I think he's in real estate. And I thought, I'm going to get into real estate. And so I just stayed. My, my buddy wanted to go home and I stayed, became a waiter and then became a loan officer. And next thing, started my own company. So you get out to California, you see this house, you see this lifestyle, and it, it casts some sense of vision for you for where you wanted to go. And then you end up taking a stab at real estate. You become a loan officer. Now, were you working, I'm guessing, for another bank, for another company? Yes, I was. I worked for a brokerage company. Mm. And sometimes I think all, a lot of life has luck. And when, when you say luck, um, it's maybe being at the right place at the right time, but then it's a matter of jumping and taking advantage of it. In my case, I was about 23, four years old when I got there. There was two other younger guys, 22 and 21, and they were the kids of the owner of the place and the owner of the investment company that we sold the loans to. So they had grown up their whole life in the business and they were doing tons of loans. And so I was with them. And so when I was started doing loans, I didn't realize that if you did 10 loans, I thought you were, you were almost a loser because they were doing 20 and 25 loans a month. Wow. And so I started pushing myself to get up to where they were. Every other company, just about a lot of them, people did two or three loans a month. That was their comfort level. And you don't know. That's like anything. If you play tennis with someone better than you, you rise to that occasion as much as you can. And that's what happened here. I was playing with two guys that were killing it. And so it upped my game to a place where I really learned how to hustle pretty well. Yeah. I think when you're around people that are pushing themselves and they're focused on becoming a better version of themselves, whether it's financially, whether it's spiritually, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, professionally, you name it, like you're going to naturally want to be like that as well, because we all know that we are a creature of our environment. So if you're surrounding yourself with 10 people that are pessimistic, they're making poor choices, they're getting hammered every night, they're doing a bunch of drugs, you name it, like you're going to end up potentially becoming that person eventually. And the same is said, if you're around 10 people that are, are striving to be a better version of themselves, doing good things for the community. They're living out their dreams. They're mission-driven. They're dedicated. They just have this strong work ethic. You're going to become that person too. Balcony people or basement people, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So what inspired you to start your own company? Because you're in a business that's very cutthroat. It's unstable. It's unpredictable. And yeah, obviously you can have a lot of success like you have, but when people think of the mortgage industry, they think of it as it's very risky. It's rocky. And there's so much competition. So what inspired that? Yeah. it's I, I've always called it, it ignorance is bliss. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? You don't know what you don't know. And so I had been in business, right? Almost a year, a little less than a year. And the two guys I was talking to you about, they went off and started their own company. And so I thought, well, I need to start my own company. So this competition kept going. Now, instead of being loan officers, we were just brokers. We would take that business and broker it to different lenders out there. And so it was a small step, but it was where you were in control of your own destiny. And what I started learning was now that I'm my own company, I need to replace myself. The more loan officers I can get, the more business I'll do. And the more business that these loan officers will do, the more success we'll have. And I just rode that up the chain until I realized if I become the bank, I could go get all the brokers. 
Mm. Then the brokers can have all their loan officers. And now it just, it just multiplies and it became a lot easier to figure that out. Yeah. It's an interesting way of looking at it is you were just, you had already figured out the business and you said, I want to find a way to, to get to the top, be your own boss and essentially have, I guess, it seems like more control over your, your destiny and where you went in the mortgage business so that you could have more success personally, professionally, and financially, if I'm correct. And, and so what I want to know is, okay, you start Stern's Lending. It's what, 1989, I think. What was the year where you felt like, man, like I really have something special here. I'm, I'm seeing all this success. I'm starting to get some notoriety. I'm starting to get recognized. There's just something different about my company. When, what was that time like? Yeah, that was probably 2008. Okay. So it did, In the it middle of the financial crisis? You know, I mean, starting a business and getting there... By no means did I feel successful and did I feel like I hit it. And it's slow, it's painful. There's a lot of lessons in between. And so by ending up really learning very slowly, you know, I had a partner and in the beginning, in the 90s, every day we were out chasing our, our loans because they had to cover a check that was about to come through the bank. And while we never bounced a check, we came pretty darn close. You know, I mean, it was always running for the next loan. And I got tired of doing that. And so I began to realize I just didn't want to live that kind of life anymore. And I had also started a title company and an audit company and went out and got with the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and started to become a contractor. And so there got to a point where I bought out my partner and, and of those companies. And then finally, I went to him and I said, hey, I got a deal for you. Buy me out of the mortgage business. I don't like how it's being run. I don't like this feeling of always living right at the edge. And so I just want to get out. And he said, okay, as long as you're going to sign a non-compete, and I said, actually, I'm going to sign a compete. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to start a company down the street. And most of the people here, I had gotten to come work anyway over there. So he took the paper. He literally turned it around and said, okay, buy me out. And same deal. So I did. And then that was about in 98. And then we started riding really well. We did, we did really well. In- so what does really well look like in the mortgage industry? What's the revenue like? Really well. In 2000 to 2005, 2006, I think if I'm right, really was, gosh, how much was really well? 150 million a month. A month? Wow. I was thinking when you said that a year, wow. Of loans. Wow. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. Okay. It's it's really not a lot, but uh, at the time that was enough. It paid, it it did, we did well. You can have, have a nice house, nice car. You can have a nice life. And then when 2007 hit, you know, those numbers, I don't even remember. Maybe it was a couple hundred million a month. I don't remember. But when 2007 hit, I had lost, I'd gone down to, yeah, maybe it was a couple hundred million, 250 million a month. And we had gone down to about 18 million. So we had lost like 80 something percent of our volume. We had a hundred million dollars of buyback loans that went bad. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, all the guys just buy them back, buy them back. We had class action lawsuits. We had Department of Corporations asking us to go back five years and audit all the loans and pay prepaid interest, all kinds of crazy stuff. So it was very dark. It was 
no way in the world I could ever see getting out of that one. And at that point, I took a clipboard, filled it out with every single person and said, all right, I'm going to sit down with each one of them. I'm going to figure out, are you going to work with me? You're going to tell me to pound sand. And I said, I don't really care. I just want to know how many people are going to tell me to pound sand. And then I know whether I, I got a chance or I don't. And by the end of that, everyone said they'd work with us. That was November 07. At that time, we opened up five offices of failed companies, which people said that was the craziest thing, but it felt right because it was talent. When in the world would I get that kind of talent? And then we opened five more in 08, and then we started taking off. 09, we opened 100 offices, something like that. I think by about 2011 or 12, we did about a billion a month. And then it just kept going from there. Then it peaked and then you ended up selling for a lot of money to Blackstone. Was it 2015, 2014? 2014. So did you, I wanted to ask, did you see the financial crisis coming? Could you see the writing on the wall or were you totally blindsided back then? Absolutely. Could see it. Google my name in 2005 and I was telling everybody, this is going to burst. This is crazy. These loans with stated income, no money down is insane, should not be doing them. And it was just insane. Credit was so loose. And it was absolutely just a lot of people just running into easy money when you knew it was going to blow up. Yeah. I can imagine that if you were in the thick of it and you were as successful as, as you were and on the front lines of a lot of what was going on, and you just had a knack for the industry, you could probably, I'm sure, tell that something was about to burst quick, just based on, like you said, a lot of the weird stuff, I guess you could say, that was going down during that time. And while a lot of people listening to this aren't in the mortgage industry or they weren't in the finance business back then, it might not be able to relate to that specifically. There's a lot of people that I think now have hit a massive crisis financially, emotionally, mentally, that they're just feeling down and out. They're feeling like it's 2007, 2008 in their life, maybe all over again. Maybe it's the first time they're experiencing this. So how did you, what advice do you have for somebody, or maybe it's how you handled it that is in a moment like this, where they just feel like their back is completely against the wall. They're on the verge of going bankrupt uh, on all levels. They've lost their job. They've lost hope and they have no idea where to go. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Legion. If you're anything like me, you only take the best of the best when it comes to supplements. And you're always looking for those that are also backed by science, use natural sweeteners, and fully transparent with their ingredients. This is why I love the products at Legion which is also the number one all-natural sports supplement company in the world. I currently am enjoying their vanilla plant protein, which goes into a post-workout smoothie after I work out, or it acts as a quick snack while on the run or between clients and interviews. I think we can all agree that 2021 is a year that we need to make health a priority, which is also why I consistently take their Triumph multivitamin and immune support to ensure that I am doing everything I can to feel my best. So if you want to follow my lead and take the best supplements around that have free shipping and a hundred percent money back guarantee, go to buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug to get 20% off your first order. Again, it's buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug at checkout. Now back to the show. I'll say this first. 
this too shall pass. Mm. Okay. A great mentor of mine, George Argeros, and my darkest days in that middle of that time, that was his advice to me. And he was right because nothing stays stagnant. Nothing. We change, we evolve. Things are great. Things are horrible. There's one thing that's constant and that is it's that it's always changing. It's never, you're never going to be in one spot. And I've looked at a lot of things that I've done in my life when I've been this great philanthropist and I've given back and I've done a lot of things and we, I feel good about it. And I remember in 07, 08, when I had it all on the line after listening to so many great business people and so many people that had really made it in this world of business. And I thought, what's the common thing most of them have? And that is that they all faced a crisis or two or three. And it's not who you are when you're at the top of your game, because we're all living large then. It's who are you at the bottom? That's and so when you're there, and if you're there, you got to realize it's your time. It's your turn. Okay, you're not going to stay there. Now, communicate, communicate, over communicate, Figure out how you're going to get yourself out of it because you have a couple choices, right? You're either going to stick your head in the sand, close your eyes and wait for it to blow over. And it's going to be long and painful, or you're going to fight like hell. You're going to figure out what you need to do. You're going to get in people's face and you're going to make it change quicker. We live in the world. A lot of people love to live in the world of maybe. If I don't do anything, maybe I won't get a no. I want to know my answer right away. Is it a yes or a no? And if it's not a yes, I'm going to try to figure out how to make it a yes. But don't live in the world of, if I don't ask, then at least I still have a shot. No, you don't. Figure it out as quick as you can and then get that answer to a yes. So the more people live in that world of pain and they're, and they're upside down and they're in the financial crisis, the quicker you have to attack it and get out of it and figure it out. And, but it's hard. It's scary. You're going to lose it all, right? But that's the time you got to tell yourself, this is what you're built for, is to be able to now, everyone is looking at you. I had my name on all these big buildings. I had all this stuff going on. And now the world's looking at me about to fall. And I thought, this is when I'm going to be the strongest. And I've, I'm real proud of being able to pull out of things. And even if I didn't, I'm glad that I stood there strong and didn't blink at a time when I wanted to put my head in the sand. Yeah. I think when adversity or hardship strikes, I think people tend to put their head in the sand because they're afraid of putting their their neck on the line and failing. But I think what people don't realize is not doing anything is not just failing. It's guaranteeing you that you're going to fail because you're essentially just folding the cards and saying, I quit. Whereas if you at least take the chance and say, okay, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I'm going to do everything I possibly freaking can to figure it out and try and bet on myself. It at least gets me in the game. It at least gives me a chance. It at least gives me some hope that I could potentially get through it. And then odds are you will get through it. You'll probably have some bumps, some bruises, some cuts here and there. But you get through it. And then what that teaches you is you're like, wow, like 
I, I built resilience. I learned a lot of lessons. Here's some people that have come in my life that I'm thankful for along the way. Here's some things that I need to change. Here's some things I should do differently. Here's where I need to adjust in my business or person, whatever it is. And you get through and you build some sense of confidence because you did something that was really scary. When your back's against the wall and you're broken, it's really scary to want to get back up because it takes honesty. It takes vulnerability. It's, it, it takes raising your hand and saying, I don't know everything right now and I need help. And that's really challenging to do. But what's also challenging, what's also really hard is staying stuck with your head in the sand and time passing you by. And you finally pick your head up out of the sand and say, gosh, where's the time gone? I wish I would have taken that chance, bet on myself, put my neck out on the line and gave it another shot because now I'm faced with so many more problems as a result of me not doing anything about the situation itself. Amen. Exactly. If you just admit that it's time to fight instead of a wait tomorrow, I might feel better tomorrow. That's as part of the avoidance of what's going to happen. And I think in my life, when I was young, my mom and my mom would take my sister and I put us in the car when I was probably five and say, let's go kids. We're going to get lost. We drive and drive in the Maryland big farm fields and she'd pull over and go, Oh no, guess what? And we'd say we're lost. And then it would be so fun to find our way home. Mm -hmm. And when I look at that, instead of being afraid, Oh my God, what's around the corner is going to kill me. It was always, I want to run around the corner. I'm excited about what's around the corner. So that change versus, and then I get into fourth grade. I fail fourth grade. All right. I feel like a dummy to everybody, but guess what? I meet all these new cool fourth graders that become my dear friends to this day. I'm still friends with 40 something of them that are coming to my ranch in July from Maryland that are going to be out there. Then I go to eighth grade. Oh my goodness. I've got a kid. This is the worst thing in my life. Guess what? I've got a beautiful daughter and now two granddaughters. So luckily, I was always hit with this is going to be the worst thing in my life, which turns out to be the best thing in my life. So I have had that reconditioned feeling of that when change happens, it can turn out you can find the silver linings, right? And that's your point. And a lot of us aren't given early on those lessons. So I think we decided we better freeze or yeah. we are afraid. And, and so maybe that's been a little advantage I've had is just had a lot of adversity early on. Yeah. And our, our greatest setbacks more often than not can become some incredible blessings. And I think in the times of adversity, in those moments of darkness, it's hard to see the light because we're so focused on the darkness itself. We're so focused on everything that's going wrong that we forget all the hard things that we have gone through or all the times where we have doubted ourselves and we got through it and it, it made us stronger in a certain way. And I think if when people, like you said, when they're in a time that's not ideal for them, if they can just hone in on the fact that every other time they've gotten through something or they've gone through something, there has been some positive that's come out of it and some positive will come out of this. I think the problem is this, and I say this a lot, is a lot of times the setback or the challenge or the adversity, if you will, becomes is a golf ball size problem in itself. But 
based on the way people respond to it, it becomes a bowling ball size problem. They are pessimistic. They put their head in the sand. They blame other people. They play the victim card over and over again. They turn to drugs and alcohol excessively and go on and on with examples. And now they have all these other problems and setbacks because of the choices they made in response to the original one, where instead, if they just have that golf ball and they say, like I was saying a few minutes ago, I accept that this is hard right now but I'm going to get through it because I know that I've gotten through challenges before and I'm going to do whatever it takes to do it. I'm going to make sure I'm exercising and hanging out with good people and meditating and reading books and reaching out to mentors, whatever it is to keep yourself grounded and stable during that situation to manage your stress and and manage your health and and all these things that you know you need to do to get through tough times. Like eventually that golf ball size problem will dissipate. And I I think if more people can adopt that mentality, I think more people will have stronger adversity muscles. They'll have stronger perseverance muscles, stronger grit muscles, and, and more confidence in the end. And, and you haven't been immune to, to, to setbacks, Glenn, like since, since you were a kid either. And since you started Stern's Lending. And I think what a lot of people don't know is that after you were pretty much at the, the peak of your career, I think you had just recently sold off to Blackstone. You got this crazy, just unfortunate cancer diagnosis. So talk about what was going through your mind at that point. Was there this sense of, man, I can't believe this is happening to me. Did you feel completely depleted? You're, I'm sure just, man, I've achieved all this stuff. And here I am being diagnosed with cancer. And what lessons did you learn from that? I thought it's the irony of my life because every time it seems that the minute I start to feel maybe I am a little bit bigger than my britches. I get clobbered. And I should, by the way, because I think it keeps me humble and it Mm. keeps me grounded. And when I was at that point where we were doing really well, I got sick and realized, okay, I'm going to sell because I want to focus on my family. And so I was given a wonderful gift as far as I was concerned. I was nervous that maybe I wouldn't pull through it. I ended up losing 45 pounds with the chemo and the radiation and all that good stuff. And, but it gave me the opportunity to think of what was important in my life. It wasn't money. And yeah, you can say that when you get a lot of it, I'm sure, but it was experiences. And so I was at my biggest earning power years and I just took a boat and said, let's go and we took the family. And we just went around the world and just took our time year and a half had one of my sons that was going to go to college and I talked him out of going to college. I asked him to be a deckhand on the boat. I took my ex-wife and I asked her if she would. So this wasn't a sailboat. Was this like a big yacht? Yeah. Yeah. It had a helicopter on it. So that (laughs) helicopter, but yeah. Okay. And I took my ex-wife and I asked her if she quit. She was a teacher and she would come over and teach our little girls. and, And she did. So we, Yeah, the boat was big enough where I didn't have to be exactly in the same room with my ex-wife the whole time. (laughs) She's a wonderful lady. But so we just went and saw the world. And it was, I when I look back on what is the best thing I've ever done in my life, it was spending that time with my family. And and I really enjoyed it. And I did it with my dad. We dove 40-something days in a row, dove and fished. We brought a fishing boat with us as well. And anyway, I guess my point to the story is that found that whether I had six days, six months, or 60 years, I was going to make the best of it with my family. And we did that for about a year and a half. And I came back and I said, 
all right, I'm ready to get back in this mortgage thing. Let's do it. I'm excited now. And, and then I've got the people that bought me said, well, we've got people running this thing and we think we're cool if they just keep running it. And so I was like, oh crap, now I can't compete because I have a non-compete mm. and I can't get back in the business. So I was stuck for a couple of years. Yeah. And I guess from what I understand is you got the initial cancer diagnosis back in what, 2014, 2015? Yeah. Same time. Right. Yeah. You lose a bunch of weight. You decide to spend all this time with your family. You go on this big, large yacht that you have around the world and you take that time to really be intentional um, with, with your time and spending it with those that you love the most. And that was a time it seems that you was the most, the, the moment you're most proud of was being able to take that trip. And then you come back and you get some unfortunate news that the company that had bought you out didn't want you to be part of the business it was now doing after buying you out. And you have to go on this other self-discovery journey. And this is what inspired you in some sense to start Undercover Billionaire, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So, it was, yeah. Now I don't have a real job, which I didn't, not that I needed it. I was happy doing what I was doing. I was living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I had people asking me for about 12, 13, 14 years if I would do a show because I did one 15, 16 years ago called The Real Gilligan's Island. And what happened was there was somebody from my work that was a finalist and they talked about myself and my wife and they said they'd make great guests on the show or whatever. I ended up on it with my wife. I won the whole show. And so people kept coming back, the producers Hey, do you want to do another show? Do you want another show? And I'd always say, I'll tell you what I would do. I'll do, I don't like that idea, but I would do a show where you could drop me off anywhere in the world with no money, no contacts. And I bet I could do it over again. And so I would say that all the time. And I'd say, put me anywhere in the United States. I said, I believe in this country and I bet you I can do it. And so I got a call and they said, Hey, Discovery says, put your money where your mouth is. And so this is when, when I, at 2018, 2019, that was 2018. And I go out to do that show. And what do you know? I get cancer again. Wow. And so that was put on hold for a year. When I say hold, it was just done. I thought it was over. I was not doing real well. I had to get surgery and some other stuff. And and then they called me back about 10 months later and said, hey, you still want to do it? And I said, of course. And we went out and did the show Undercover Billionaire. And 10 days before the show, I had a final surgery. Nobody <laughs> knows that. And so I see why I cough right now. But And so we went out and we did it one more time. But went out and did the show. And that was crazy. And it wasn't for me about making money. It was all of a sudden I realized I've just put my whole reputation on the line. And now the whole world gets to watch me fail or maybe fail. You know, that was a little stressful. Yeah. I just, it just seems no matter how far along the path you go, the adversity seems to come your way. And what I gather is that your approach and the way you handle it is that the whole, this too shall pass. And it's okay. Here it is. I'm going to get through it. It's hard. I don't know why it's here. I know, I've heard you say that you think it's like part of you being humbled because sometimes your ego, I guess, just like all of us can get in the way and say, this is how great I am. This is how wealthy I am. I'm the best. And then you get checked, right? And then you somehow are in that moment. And as hard as it may be, you just do whatever you need to do to get through it. 
And as much as you probably felt defeated and depleted, I'm sure in the back of your mind, you were like, you know what, I'm going to create something magical out of this. So I want to get into one of the messages from Undercover Billionaire and how it relates to just people in general. Like, I think if I remember correctly, the specifics of your show is you're stranded with like a hundred bucks, a full tank of gas, a car and a cell phone in Erie, Pennsylvania, and you start Stern's barbecue. So what I want to know is if somebody listening to this, they want to start a business or something meaningful, what are the non-negotiables to make it sustainable and, and last long-term? Well, you know, what I did was I went out to prove, I guess you'd say that I could really surrounding myself with great people, no matter where you are, you can end up, I had something right here on that. That's funny. I forget where it is. Anyway, I thought that if you surround yourself with great people and you give them a vision and you lead by example and you lead with integrity that you can do just about anything. And so I thought, all right, let's go and see if this can work. And and the idea and the premise was we had 90 days. I had 90 days to do this. I couldn't tell them I had some success in the past and had some money or any contacts. I just had to do it with myself and finding this team. And what I think that most people, I think, found, especially the ones that I asked to join me, was that they didn't even realize they were capable of hitting the goals that they could hit. It's like a lot of times we underestimate our own strength. We don't realize how resilient we can be, how strong we can be, how much we can get done in a day. We don't when we just march without much focus or without a real goal or a deadline. And so by putting those things in place and driving with I think a lot of humor and a lot of appreciation and fun, it got people to do things they never even dreamed they could do. And so we ended up opening what we called underdog barbecue for a town that's really an underdog town, which was Erie, Pennsylvania. It had been beat up and it had been one of the Rust Belt towns that it's now having this resurgence And it became a wonderful, I think, microcosm of what can be done in any of these little small towns across the United States or anywhere if you work together and you have a common goal and you all really stretch outside of your own comfort zone. And it worked fantastic with a lot of hiccups, by the way. Don't get me wrong, because when people think, oh, it's easy or you made it look easy, I hope it didn't look easy because it wasn't. Because I don't think any success comes that easy. Maybe if you're really lucky, but most of the time there's a lot of bumps along the way. Yeah, I think success never comes easy. I think people tend to see people at the top of the mountain. And a lot of times they don't see all the, the bumps and bruises and the amount of times they fell and how success isn't very linear. It's very rocky. But I think the people who are most successful are the ones that can embrace the uncertainty. They can learn to face their fears. They can learn to take risk. They can learn to believe in themselves. They have the right people around them. They take the time to invest in themselves, to learn the right skills and get the right tools necessary to be able to achieve whatever it is that they're, they're going after. And 
I think a lot of people right now, or there's people in general, I think just through social media, maybe it's through what they see on TV. They see, like you described, the yacht with the helicopter on top, or they see jets, or they see millions. They see all this stuff, and that's what they chase. And I think you can only chase that for so long before you can't chase it anymore. And it becomes almost, it's very misleading. And if that cup, that, that water cup, if you're filling that cup with water and the, the water represents money, fame, shiny objects, that cup gets empty really quick and you got to keep refilling it more and more each time. And then eventually what tends to happen, I think when they, people chase the wrong things is they lose themselves because they create an identity based on things that are external and they lose sight of what they're doing. They lose sight of who they are as a person. They end up making bad decisions. They end up getting greedy. Right. So what advice do you have for somebody who's maybe, maybe they're listening to this and their goal right now is to have a jet, to have a big house, to make millions. And that's what they're living off of right now is those dreams. (laughs) One thing I would tell them to do is read a book called chop wood, carry water. And it basically is a lot of what I just said, which was my overnight success started in 89 and I didn't hit that until 2014. So it's not overnight. And so if you're looking at things and saying, I want the jet and I want all these things, I think you need to take that out of your mind somehow and say, I need to build a strong organization that's going to be a leader that's going to do, I want to, what is it your goal is? And if you can figure out these goals and enjoy the ride, not think, I can't wait till I get to the destination. Mm-hmm. Enjoy building and growing and not put a deadline on it. I didn't have a deadline. I've just started my other company now. What's your exit strategy? I don't have an, I don't want an exit strategy. Okay. I don't like those type of, you got to put this deadline on something and what are you going to do? No, I'm having fun. Okay. And so I enjoyed growing that business. I enjoyed it all. And you know, who was it? Mike Tyson, right? Everybody has a plan to they get punched in the face. The fact is, the reality is that in business, it's not about having your game plan all mapped out and then freaking out when it doesn't go the way it's going to go. It will not go the way you plan it. That's 100% sure. Okay. It's about this is my next opportunity to sit and to have a, a brainstorming session. What you are is you are a problem solver. That's what you are as a, a entrepreneur. Okay. Cause you've got this map of where you're going to go and it's going to go off track every day, every week, every month, whenever. And you just have to solve for that problem. That's what it is. Don't think I have a problem and now that's, oh no. My plan is blown up. I'm not going to know you're, you're, it's supposed to blow up. It has to, it's, that's how you learn. Okay. And so if you don't, if you look at that, like that's a failing, I'm failing because I'm gone off track, then you are lost. If you look at it, like I knew it was going to go off track. It's just fix it. That's all. It's not a big deal. It's just, it was going to go off track because of the economy, because something happened with your product, because there's going to be a billion reasons. It doesn't matter. You just got to keep problem solving and fixing it. And then when you do that, you're going to come 20 years down the road or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you're going to go, wow, 
looks pretty good. One of the biggest, or I'm one of the best or the most efficient, or I'm the whatever that craft, right? That whole 30,000 hour thing or whatever, Michael Markham Gladwell. And when you really know what you're doing, then you have value. And at that point, maybe you take it off the table like I did. Maybe you don't. You just have a cash cow, maybe whatever. But just if you're focused just on that, I think you're focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. And I, and I think life's too short. And I think you can't take things for granted. And I think you have to trust the process, enjoy the process, and just know that if you're stepping in the realm of, of creating something and taking risks, that it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. There's going to be times where it seems like you're not going to get through whatever it is, but you just have to continue to have that belief in yourself and the mission in the purpose, um, in people around you and what you're doing, and you'll end up getting through it. And I, as I've said, and you've said here a few times, like it's not always going to be easy. There's never going to be perfection, but you just get through it and you move on. And then you just keep getting over each hurdle. You learn more about, you learn more about yourself along the way. You become stronger, you become wiser, you become more resilient. And that's how things are built sustainably. That's how companies um, are built that last long-term. That's how other endeavors are built that last forever is just by just continuing to go, even when it doesn't seem possible to keep going. And I want to go back to taking life for granted from it, taking things for granted, because I can imagine with all the setbacks that you've gone through, you've learned lessons from every single one of them. But if I had to guess, I would say that having cancer at the peak of your success, when you had achieved all this stuff, financially, personally, professionally, that there was probably some moments where you were like, man, there were some things that I took for granted. What lessons came out of that on the importance of having gratitude and having this perspective of the little things in life? Yeah, I think that, again, what I found the most interesting of when I look back on my life, it's, it was never, I can tell you some, the moment that I sold the business, all right, let me go backwards for you for a second. In 2007, when the world was upside down, I was in a group called YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. And there was one of our members that he was aged out. You get to be 50, they kick you out. And so we were here in this office. And again, I was at a time where I didn't know if the next day I'd be able to open the doors, it'd be locked, who knows? It was a bad time. But my wife brought in four bottles of champagne and we got to toast this guy's goodbye. It was my week to host, my month to host the event. So I hosted him. And as we cleaned up that day, I noticed one of the bottles of champagne wasn't open. And I looked at it and I said, man, I'm going to keep this in my fridge because if I make it out of this, I'm popping this champagne. Well, I put it in my fridge and we busted through 07 and came out into 08 and had the best year of 08. And I'd always reach in there and grab a water and I'd look at the champagne and I'd not yet. Oh, nine. We ended up blowing up. We ended up number one wholesaler in the country. Oh, not yet. It just continued to, to grow. And so finally it came time for me to sell and I sold that business. And the day I sold the business, was probably the saddest day of my life. I bawled my head off. Was I making a mistake? I love these people. We had something special. People out of 1,500 people in my organization at the time, we ended up at 4,000 people or whatever, but 
there was, I had five people leave in a year. Nobody left. We had, I mean, a culture that was great. And here I am now I've rung the bell, so to speak. It's not time to open that bottle of champagne. What I realized was it was never, when you open that bottle, okay, when you have hit and arrived, so to speak, what's left, right? It's like, what's left to, to, to do? And here I am realizing what I loved was all the times that we got together, we fought through 07 and 08. I loved when we hit our first billion dollars in a month. I loved when we hit 2 billion in a month. I loved hitting the goals. I loved the experiences that we had. So when I look back and I think about what it was never about the money, right? It was always about, I can't tell you how many weddings and bat mitzvahs and funerals and things I've gone to because it's as a business owner, to me, it was my job to care about this family too. And that's why I went and did it again, because it was more about this feeling. It's just, I love these people. I love what I do. And all the money in the world didn't do anything except I felt like I just abandoned a family. And at the same time, I was confused a little because I had the cancer and what am I doing? So there was a lot going on in my head at the time, but it was more, I don't think I did the right thing to this day. I, and that's why I'm doing it again and brought the whole band back together. So. Do you think that's why a lot of people will end up going back and doing something after they've had a lot of success professionally and personally, where they essentially wouldn't need to work another day in their life, but they feel this lack of purpose, this lack of meaning. They feel like they may have abandoned some people in their life when they sold the company or they left or whatever it was that they want to go and and reinvent that environment in some way. Maybe, but I think there's, there's joy in doing. Again, there's only so many weeks you can spend it on a boat or so many elk you can look at in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I enjoy all that and I'm grateful for it, but I love the race. It's fun. I was with Boone Pickens at his ranch in Texas once, T. Boone Pickens. And I said, Boone, I said, you have been a billionaire and then you went broke. Then you were a billionaire and then you went flat broke. I said, now you're a billionaire again. I said, why are you doing it? And he said, son, I just like being in the game. Hey, man, it's not about the money. It's the fun. And every one of my friends that are 85, 90, I just had lunch with a guy. I got his card somewhere over here. He's turned 100 a couple months ago. And every one of them are active still. They keep their minds sharp. They love business. They love literally exercising and doing things. It's when we stop thinking, when we stop our body in motion, we die. But when you keep going, hopefully you can outrun outrun it for as, for as long as you can. Yeah. And you just answered the last question I was going to ask you is I was going to ask you what keeps you inspired to keep going? Because now you've started a new company with your wife, Mindy kind lending. And I was just going to ask what, what inspires you to do this again after you really don't need to, so to speak, you've, you're a cancer survivor. You've been very successful financially, personally, and professionally. You're just, you've lived the life already. What's the point of doing this all over again? You've had a TV show, you've produced a TV show. What else do you need to do? But now I understand. I understand why you love the thrill. You love the race. You love the game. I'm just putting well, I was, yourself. When I did the show, I was with Richard Branson and John Elway. And I said, would you do this? 
They said, hell no. Why would I want to relive and do that? And I said, I don't know. I don't know why, but I'm really excited to do this. What's your plan, Glenn? I said, I don't have a plan. I'm going to wing it. I'm going to figure it out. And when I got into the middle of it, did I realize that I'm in a deeper hole than I ever thought? And I might not make it out of this hole. Yeah. And this time the world is going to finally see, I'm going to be exposed for not being that bright, but being pretty lucky. This is it. This time, all that is the chatter we all hear about give up. That's what it is in all of our ears when we hear that, right? And I was hearing it loud. The whole world is going to see. I dug out of that hole. I'm very proud of what ended up happening on Undercover Billionaire. And that is why you do it, right? Because that's what we do. We overcome. That's what we are as people, humans. Okay, we do when we don't give up the fight. So going back and taking kind lending on, I did it because I enjoy this everyday problem solving. Mm-hmm. It's not going to go perfect. We know right, that. Okay, right. but what we did in the first ninety days here at Kind Lending, it took me fifteen years to do last time. Mm-hmm. So while it still had a lot of bumps in the road, we went over a lot of hurdles a lot quicker by working with our heads because we've had the wisdom of 30 something years of experience and a bunch of us. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think it's incredibly admirable what you've done, what you've accomplished. And I think that's a big fear is like you see on the outside, there's people looking at people saying, Oh, that person's super successful. They know what they're doing. They've built this business, but now like you take it to another level and you're like, all right, let's just see if I'm actually, if it was luck, let's just see if I can actually do this in real time. And you did it. I think you built this company in what you had, they gave you 90 days and you did it in how long did it take you? Yeah, no, I did it in the 90 days. Yeah. in 90 days. But I did, but with the, the thing is, and I'll move you forward for a second on the kind lending part, because when, after doing that, I came back literally the day they announced the undercover billionaire is going to be on discovery starting when the same day they announced that, is when my past company announced chapter 11, it was going bankrupt. So here I had the Wall Street Journal call me and say, are you Mr. Undercover Billionaire or are you bankrupt? I'm going, um, it has my name on this, but I sold you know, my majority of the company. I'm still a large stakeholder, but I have no say in the company. And so that was a very painful day. And I was upset that they decided to reorganize. They reorganized me out of a lot of money. And uh, and so they came out of that with no debt and just rode this last year out and did very well. That's why, by the way, those private equity guys are very smart. I I have a different take on that. I borrow money and do things. I like to pay it back. It it is what it is. But they're very versed at making money for their shareholders. That's what they do. So when I came out of that, when that happened, it was a day I realized, oh, now I can compete again because mm-hmm. my non-compete is wiped out. So I went at it with this just excitement. I am ready to go. But now I'm not focusing at all. I don't want to have investors. I don't want to have analysts. I don't want to have a, a game plan that says I'm going to be out of here in three years, five years, 10 years. I don't need that. I want to go in here and I'm build a culture where if you have people that are in for more time than they are with their families, I want to make sure they're happy because there is a lot more currency than money. 
Mm. There's a happiness currency, the health currency. There's joy. There's all kinds of things that make us tick. And my job is I want you to come in here and say, this company changed my life. I want people to feel good. And I want to go do things that are much bigger than just a mortgage business. I want to do bigger things with the company. So we're off on a wonderful, wonderful role with making something so much more meaningful than just a job. And that to me is what it's all about. Yeah. I love what you said about different levels of currency. Cause I think when you hear the word currency, people just think of it in the form of money. And while obviously that is a major form of currency, there's other currency too. You have family currency, you have your emotional currency, you have your health currency, you have your relationships currency. You have all these other things that are crucial in order for everything else to work together. Because in my experience, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this, like most of the time when people are having business problems, it's generally a personal problem. Something's going on at home. They're struggling mentally or emotionally. They've something's going on with their health. They've maybe they're struggling with addiction, whatever it is. And it's reflecting on their business. It's reflecting on their productivity. It's reflecting on their finances. So we cannot emphasize enough, making sure you're taking care of all levels of currency and not just money. The money is a byproduct of taking care of all the other areas of your life. Glenn, this has been incredible. It's been amazing. I've been thoroughly enjoyed our conversation as I'm sure the listeners are going to as well. So where can people find out more about you if they want to uh, look you up or connect with you on social media, that sort of thing? Yeah, where? You can try me at Glenn Stearns, G-L-E-N-N-S-T-E-A-R-N-S. I know that's on Facebook. Uh, Yesterday I got hacked and they took down my Instagram. Hopefully I'll have that back. Please, what do you call it? What do you do on Instagram? Do you subscribe? Follow, follow me. Yeah, there we go. My first user, second follower, third. I got to start <laughs> all over again. <laughs> no, no, hopefully I get it all back. But um, so no. you're going to be the undercover Instagram user now. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, I think I'm Glenn Stearns on just about everything. All the Twitters and all those kind of things. So. Awesome. I will make sure to include all this, your social media stuff, your website, that sort of thing in the show notes uh, for this episode. And Glenn, I once again, wanted to thank you for coming on this episode of the Adversity Advantage. And for those listening, I'm sure there was a lot you got out of this, whether it was Glenn's story, how he built his business, some of the hardships he faced along the way. Maybe it was something that you related to, or when he struggled with cancer, maybe there was somebody in your family or a loved one that that unfortunately struggled with cancer. And that was something you related to whatever it is. Maybe it was a a different tip. He shared something on money. There were so many nuggets dropped. What I want you to do is take a screenshot, tag Glenn, tag myself with your biggest takeaway. Maybe it was something that you learned that you're going to apply in your life after you get done listening to this episode. Maybe it was something that hit home with you. That was just like a nugget that you're like, you know what? Like I never thought about it this way. And what I want you to do is share it tag Glenn, tag myself. We'd love to hear feedback and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Doug.